The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, in what's commonly known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. Well, my friends, the big news for me this year is that my forthcoming book, The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year, will be in stores on October 18th, 2022. It's an animistic kitchen magic cookbook. I hope you'll like it. I'm excited because the publisher kept in a lot of really cool parts, cool to me anyway, like um, one of my favorites is the part about how the labor movement um, is really a carryover from Beltane, which is one of the festivals at the Wheel of the Year. Um, And they kept in the parts where I mentioned, you know, inspirational figures like Mother Jones, the Black Panthers, Zapatistas, Louis Riel and the Métis. Romani resistance as like aspects of the same spirit um, of love and collectivism uh, that we celebrate and honor on that day. But they they did cut a lot, though. My contract was for like 45,000 words and my manuscript I turned in was like (laughs) 80,000. I think in the end, I was able to trim it to like 60,000, a little under that. Um, But that I mean, that was painful. There was any academic, I guess this is, I understand you, you know about this where something gets cut and you're like, but I had, I read like, you cut that paragraph and I read an entire book on medieval Irish cattle herding for that paragraph, (laughs) which is like not a joke that actually happened. Anyway, you can stay tuned to that, the publishing of my book by signing up for my newsletter at the bottom of my website. So 2022 also marks eight years of the Numinous podcast. A lot has changed in the podcasting landscape. A lot has changed in the world. (laughs) Do I really even have to say it? But you know what hasn't changed? Collapse. Collapse is still happening. Longtime fans of the podcast will remember my earlier episodes on Collapse. I've literally done multiple episodes every year since 2014. I do have them all organized in like one list on a page on my website, which I'll link to in the show notes so you can go back and see them all in one spot. But basically, I guess now I'm at a point where this is like my annual report on the state of collapse. Um, I've noticed since the outset of the pandemic that people are starting to use the term collapse much more freely. Um, I think at first it was like nervous joking, (laughs) but now people are like, wow, we are really not vanquishing this foe with the sureness we'd have expected by now. And certainly with war in Europe and Russia's threat of nuclear war, um, capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy is really wowing us with just how strong its death drive really is and how quickly it accelerates. So let's get folks up to speed on what collapse is in a nutshell, because it is something very specific. I know we all kind of have a sense of like, oh, collapse, end of empire. But actually understanding the core components will be very grounding, I think. So we'll quickly get people up to speed in this episode so we can all get onto the work of coping better. So uh, collapse is the result of converging emergencies from large-scale cooperation dilemmas for which there are no solutions. I know that's a lot to digest. We're going to keep our arms and legs on in this episode. This would be a good one to listen to while you're tasking, like doing the dishes or gardening or something. Um, But if you're like sitting or driving every once in a while, just like wiggle in your seat. Um, You want to like point your toes, flex your hands, stay just a little mobilized so that your brain has signals that you have a body with arms and legs that you can mobilize if you need to. Okay, so the issues we're facing with like, I don't know, pick them, right? COVID, imperialism, peak oil, uh, climate emergencies, white supremacy, with all of these large-scale cooperation dilemmas. They are not problems we can solve. They are predicaments. So problems have solutions. There's one approach that has an advantage over others. But predicaments are problems with no solutions. So like, for instance, predicament is like when there's no compromise that feels livable for both parties, we have a predicament. So just in life in general, 
in the year 2022, I like the way I think of it is basically we've solved all the problems. Now all we have left in the world are predicaments, which again are problems with no solutions. They only have responses. Predicaments only have responses. I would also argue that a predicament is most often, I'm just going to say it simply, a predicament is a collapse that needs to happen. A long, drawn out, slow motion, intractable predicament is a collapse that's been stalled by terror and desperation. And like the reason we're terrified and desperate is because we are unskilled and ill-equipped to respond. So there's freeze happening at different levels, etc. Here's some good things to know, though. We're going to like start mapping the terrain a little bit. Again, have a stretch, have a wiggle, shake off any stress this is causing even just to listen. So collapse has some distinct characteristics. It's a long descent. It's been described as a slow emergency. It involves often invisible losses, innumerable invisible losses. It involves persistent, ambiguous grief. There can also be constant low-grade panic and overwhelm. There can be a palpable lack of agency, a sense of powerlessness that pervades daily life. And conditions so extremely unreasonable that they can't be rationalized or even comprehended because they're just so wildly absurd. Absurdity, like what even is a fucking billionaire? We just can't even understand it. It's so wildly absurd. So all of these are signatures of collapse. So collapse awareness, important to have so that we can constellate all of these characteristics and name them, normalize, I don't want to say normalize that, but name them so that they're recognizable. They fit a pattern. It's not just chaos, it's collapse. So I'm sure it's not news to anyone that capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patri patriarchy has brought us very rapidly to the end of empire. But you may not totally understand how. And so because of that, you may believe it's still somehow avoidable. Just spoiler alert, it's not. So um, I'm just going to paraphrase peak oil author John Michael Greer here explaining kind of why. So if a civilization relies on non-renewable resources, we rely on, on oil, gas, etc. If a civilization relies on non-renewable resources, then the depletion of those resources triggers a downward spiral. We call this catabolic collapse. It's a spiral going downwards in which each round of crisis is followed not by recovery, but by a brief reprieve. There's a brief reprieve before the declining resource base forces another maintenance crisis. So we get these periods where we're like, oh, we're stabilizing again. But then actually there'll be like another crisis somewhere else in the system and we just keep going downwards. Another way of thinking about it is the stair step where it's like, okay, we're puttering along, things are okay. And then boom, we have some kind of crisis and we fall down a step. And we even out and we're like, okay, whew, we found our footing again. Okay, here we go. But then all of a sudden we realize, oh, that, that evening out, that what felt like recovery actually weakened us somewhere else. So boom, we fall down another stair. So it's a stair step collapse. So when there's a mismatch between like the maintenance cost of the civilization and the available resources that keep that civilization going, you have collapse. So a civilization lasts anywhere from like 350 to 1,000 years, whereas an empire only lasts about 250 years. An empire is a concentration of wealth in a specific geopolitical zone and within a specific sociopolitical class of the empire. So it's in a very specific place and only certain people in that specific place. So an empire, in other words, is a concentrated wealth pump. It goes from the periphery to the center of the empire. It's an arrangement backed by military force. 
and the military force helps extract wealth from this periphery of the empire. And on the periphery are these subject nations and then pumps it back, concentrates it in the imperial core. But what happens when the subject nations are sapped of their resources and there are no more viable subject nations nearby that you can invade, the empire collapses. So a little sidebar for folks who have hoped that technology would save us or like the internet may have changed this trajectory. Um, maybe digital colonization will alter the pattern of collapse in some kind of substantial way. Remember the definition of wealth. Wealth comes from the earth. So the internet comes from the earth, right? It isn't just conjured from the air. So any kind of technological interruption of this is only going to delay collapse by like decades, not more than that. Um, I mean, you know, it's an empire. Go, go get it, right? Like invest in crypto. Go ahead, do your thing. But, if, if, but don't be deluded into thinking that technological innovation can, can delay or thwart collapse. If you've ever lived through a brownout or a blackout due to wildfires or like the Texas freeze or like Enron or whatever, you've had a glimpse of the truth that like the internet and other tech will not save us. So we will all collapse, all of us just at different rates in different places. It's happening, it won't stop happening. The planet is finite, and so growth cannot be infinite. And ultimately, these large-scale converging emergencies are predicaments, not problems. There is no solution. So there are like, okay, if that's freaking you out, don't worry, it's okay, it's okay. It's not going to be okay in the sense that we're going to be able to continue this charade of uh, the future is going to be just like the present, but like brighter and shinier. That's not what's going to happen. But um, collapse is also very regional and very localized. Everybody collapses, but just all at different times and rates, different varying degrees. Also, there are ways to make the quality of collapse better. So it's kind of like hospice care. There's like nine or 10 main collapse skills we can develop to cope better during prolonged periods of overwhelming distress, which is like another way of defining collapse, I suppose. So I'm going to name them quickly and then go through them briefly one by one. So collapse awareness is like the first skill, then trauma sensitivity, attachment and, and community relations, somatics, animism, grief and death work, ritual literacy, transformative justice. And then the last one, which I don't know if it's one or if it's two, it, it could be creativity and play. I see it a little bit more as pleasure and enoughness. Maybe that's one thing. Maybe they're two different. But essentially, these are the fundamental collapse skills. Now, I understand like for collapse for some people is very confronting and challenging on all the levels. It is challenging on all the levels. It's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, just um, disorientation, right? But I also want to say there are aspects of it, aspects of it that are also very beautiful because it is so rare to be so confronted with ourselves on all levels at once. It's poignant right? It's poignant. I love poignance. It's one of my favorite experiences. I think of it as poignance as like an inseparable combination of beauty and pain. And there is something beautiful about being enfolded in something greater than ourselves. It, it can inspire awe. And awe is one of the emotions that comes with a pro-social trigger or urge. So we can be in the presence of awe in, you know, when things are like vast or sublime, but also in the beauty of every day, in feats of human capacity, in, in things like childbirth, or even in certain circumstances, a good death, it can be a very sacred moment where there's pain and grief and also beauty. So feeling small and enfolded in something large and encompassing is a portal into a deeper and more meaningful way of living. Sometimes the greatest thing that you're enfolded into is a large-scale cooperation dilemma. 
one that leads to catastrophic converging emergencies and that reveal to us something about the human nature, our human nature, can be really poignant. So, okay, I named the nine fundamental collapse skills. I'll repeat them more slowly in a minute, but I want to share that I believe there are three meta skills that are really important developmental milestones to work towards in, in a journey to become more collapse resilient. So meta skills are types of self-knowledge and attitudes and ways of being that enable you to become competent in an endeavor. So like skills are the actions and behaviors, but the meta skills are the ways of being and attitudes and self-knowledge that enable you to apply the skills in, um, in a sophisticated way. So these three meta skills of collapse are more about being the person you need to be, not only to survive, but to support others to survive in overwhelmingly and relentlessly dire circumstances. So they're really about becoming a competent and trustworthy ad adult in the room when the shit hits the fan. So for me, the three meta skills of collapse are inner coherence, self-efficacy, and agency. So inner coherence. Okay, so disorientation is so stressful that it sort of pops off the part of your brain that um, where we... Uh, where our executive functioning is. So it sort of like pops off your prefrontal cortex. It makes it difficult to think about how you're feeling and make decisions under pressure. But if you understand what's happening, if you can like map out, oh, I, I recognize this pattern and remind yourself, oh, this is collapse, then you can restore that executive functioning and you can like mobilize enough to make the best decision you can under the circumstances. So understanding what collapse is and developing a framework for pattern recognition going forward helps provide inner coherence. And inner coherence is very grounding. It's very settling for the nervous system. And like a manageable nervous system during collapse event, I mean, that's not always possible, but it's nice work if you can get it, right? So having a framework of understanding can provide inner coherence. So can things like running scenarios. You know, what would I do if there was an emergency, you know, like having possible action plans. Where will we go if something happens, you know, prepping for likelihoods, um, you know, buying, you know, water in case of earthquake or whatever. The, all of those things help provide inner coherence. Because of course, we're going to work for the larger world we want to have, but you like prep for the emergency you're likely to get. <laughs> so having a framework of understanding helps us make best decisions we can under the circumstances, it also makes it possible for us to run scenarios and have possible action plans in, um, po you know, different scenarios so that we're not under so much pressure or we have more capacity under pressure because we've already had the strength kind of will and the nerve to run that scenario in our head in advance. So when you understand what's happening, you have that inner coherence, it helps restore a small measure of agency. So agency is when we are in choice and it's a very relative state because like, honestly, how much choice can you actually have living in late stage racialized capitalism at the end of empire, right? Um, but that relatively small opening where we see things for what they are, that little small opening lets us take a tiny breath. And with that breath, our prefrontal cortex is slightly more available to us. Our executive functioning kind of comes back and we can think about how we're feeling. We have slightly more capacity to choose. More options become available to us. So that's agency. How will we proceed given this reality? It's small and it's relative, but it's not nothing. It is how people have survived unimaginable trauma and how they live to take one more step. It reminds me of Viktor Frankl, right? Who wrote Man's Search for Meeting after World War II. He's a prisoner of war um, in uh, Second World War during the Holocaust. He said, they can take away my liberty, but they can't take away my freedom. So it's that tiny opening that allows us to remember who we are, what we're made of, what we're about, what's worth fighting for, and reach towards it. 
And then you practice. Having a practice is what develops self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the confidence to know you can perform under pressure. And there are plenty of ways we can practice for collapse and and sort of develop more self-efficacy. It's going to be totally unique to you and your specific constraints. Sometimes it's going to be more about like emergency preparedness. Other times it's going to be more about like being able to talk to your family or your neighbors (laughs) to like work together. So like someone who has diabetes and whose medicine needs to stay cold is going to want to practice what to do with their meds in a power outage situation. Whereas someone who has three small children who live in like a wildfire zone is going to want to practice getting three kids out the door with go bags as fast as possible and making it fun, right? (laughs) Somebody who um, is neurodivergent and relies on... um, different kinds of supports from community or family um, to take care of them is is going to want to probably enlist help, right? To have communication and um, be able to like set boundaries and have reciprocity in relationships and like develop the kind of relational skills that are going to be necessary when their people are under a lot of pressure and probably not their best selves and not listening very well. Um, might also need to develop a little bit more self-regulation skills and co-regulation skills so that um, they can be heard when there is an emergency. And of course, that's not all on them. And that gets into a whole thing on ableism and collapse and power rank and privilege, which is beyond the scope of what I'm going to talk about here. But I want to name as like a big important thing that exists and we get into more deeply um, in the numinous network. It's a thing that can come up sometimes when we're in our sensitive systems and long COVID connection calls where everybody there either experiences chronic illness and long-term disability. Um, lots of people with like comorbidities and autoimmune disorders, etc., or they care for someone um, and are advocating and feeling just how futile that can feel in a collapsing healthcare system. So everybody's skills that they need to uh, practice for self-efficacy is going to be different, but like communication skills and trauma sensitivity skills are also right up there. So the meta skills of collapse, agency, self-efficacy, and inner coherence. These are the things that help you become the person you need to be to navigate prolonged periods of overwhelming stress. They're also the things that elevate the quality of our humanness in the sense that through them, we cultivate greater capacity for compassion, empathy, attunement, presence, collectivism, awe, pleasure, beauty, and satisfiability. Because honestly, frankly, I don't want to just survive collapse. I want to seed the future with people who are caring, you know, and who are tracking these patterns and trying to create different worlds. People like my son and his friends, you know, these teenagers who identify as gay and anxious, they're hosting groups called like communist conversations and they're doing peer counseling for ADHD and autism and anxiety over text. They're providing mutual aid over apps like Discord and Signal. You know, they understand consent and nurturance culture. They understand the power of collectivism, the importance of compassion, the importance of our integrity. That's the world that I'm working for. I'm working for a world that they can survive in. That's what I care about. And I want to be the kind of person, the kind of trustworthy adult that they can look to for steadiness and as a ballast when the ride gets rough. But remember, you need actual practical skills and competencies to become that person. Okay, so it's not enough to be like a thought leader or a pundit or a brand in these times. And these are all identities that like kind of might be drawn to promoting collapse awareness in their work for various reasons. But like be discerning, my friends, there are actual practical skills that one must possess in order to navigate collapse, you know, collapse awareness. Yeah, it's a mental game on a certain level. You need to be informed and track patterns, but that is not enough. You need to be able to like do shit 
And sometimes that shit is going to be very practical, like, yeah, how to can food, how to garden, how to hunt. Other times it's going to be, you know, the the empathy skills. It's going to be how to facilitate groups. It's going to be how to do critical incident debriefing. It's going to be how to be sensitive and trauma-informed when welcoming um, traumatized people into your community. There's all different kinds of skills, but you actually have to be able to like fucking do something more than just like ruminate and philosophize and, and like have a hot take on things. There's like things you got to know how to do. And so you can practice doing them. Okay. So let me go back over these like nine or 10 skills here. Number one, collapse awareness. This is the ability to map collapse, track the patterns of collapse. That's the first skill. And that awareness can come from like even partially just like a personal tragedy or the observation of large scale tragedies and dilemmas and like increasingly urgent crises that they fail to address. But important to recognize that collapse awareness in itself is traumatic. So that's why just like learning about and studying collapse in and of itself is like not actually that helpful if you just stop there because it induces a survival response. So understanding what a trauma-sensitive approach to learning is smooths out the process for you and everyone around you. So let's try it right now. Everybody have a stretch. (laughs) If you're sitting, stand up if you can. Feel your arms and legs. Look around the room at stuff that is grounding and soothing. Have a twist and like look behind you. There's no one chasing you right now. The sky is not falling right now. And watch for any signs of just settling and really give in to them. For some people, it's a sigh, a yawn, a cough. For some people, it's eyes watering or mouth watering or tummy rumbling. Maybe your head tilts or your shoulders drop. If none of that's happening, try making your exhale twice as long as the inhale. (sighs) Try pressing on your left lung a little pressure on one of the ganglia of the vagus nerve there over your heart and maybe even just a little rocking or self-hold could be good so trauma sensitivity is just what the world might be like if it weren't for capitalist imperialist white supremacist patriarchy but there are qualities of it right consent voice choice agency Um, People having an awareness of power, rank, and privilege. um, That's all part of trauma sensitivity. The third skill is attachment and working in community. So why attachment theory? When it comes to collapse, there's a lot of conflict. There just is. Either you're going to fight about whether collapse is happening at all, and you're going to have to like try to justify that it exists. Some people just do not, cannot process that. There'll be conflict on how you should respond to collapse. You know, like, even if it's just like, should we get one yard or two yards of compost and soil amendments hauled in? Should we spend this much money? Should we live here? Should we live there? There's just, it's just rife with opportunity to collapse. Um, Sorry, to have conflict. And so secure attachment is one of the things that will help us make better decisions. It regulates the nervous system, which again helps our brain process. So in a nutshell, secure attachment is the ability to feel within yourself and engender in someone else the sense of being safe, seen, secure, and soothed. And the the, the building blocks of that, the how of secure attachment is what we call contact nutrition. It's kind eyes, vocal prosody, safe touch, shared rhythm, and ingestion behaviors like eating and drinking. So contact nutrition is to secure attachment like vitamins are to a healthy diet. And I go way deeper in this in um, my course, which is called Secure, the Magical Art and Subtle Science of Attachment. It's evergreen. It's go at your own pace. It's in my Numinous Network. And then I have some programs that are small group programs that run throughout the year called Co-Healing Pods, where we literally just learn what are the different exercises and things we can do to self-regulate and co-regulate with others using contact nutrition. And this is a concept I got through my training in 2017 with Diane Poole Heller in somatic attachment repatterning. Um, 
I don't know if she invented the term contact nutrition or if it was someone else, but that's who I learned it from. And since then, I've basically just created multiple courses off this idea of like, it's not rocket science. There's really like five things we can do to like calm the nervous system, feel more secure within ourselves and help other people feel more secure in our presence. So let's focus on those five forms of contact nutrition. So in other words, my friends, I commend to you, become competent in the skill of being in relationship with stressed out, traumatized humans. <laughs> That's why trauma sensitivity and attachment theory. And that'll lead you very quickly to somatics. From a somatics perspective, we might say the one with the most powerful nervous system wins. It could be powerfully dysregulated or powerfully calm, but whoever has like the strongest nervous system field, that's who's going to kind of set the agenda. Now in collapse, one of the strongest responses that I often see is a freeze response. And the lesson here about nervous systems is not that the freeze response is bad. I, I'm, I'm definitely not a person who will put the quote unquote well-regulated or calm nervous system on the altar. Freeze and dissociation are highly adaptive. They should be included as a strategy to like consciously employ in order to endure long emergencies. Freeze is the escape when there is no escape. Freeze is a state where we go into deep energy conservation because we don't know how long the crisis is going to last. So energy conservation in a crisis is very smart. But I just want to highlight that knowing how intrapersonal and interpersonal neurobiology works, like our own secure relationship with ourselves and our ability to track safeness and feel safeness and land it in the body ourselves and then sense it between us and others or in our environment takes some conditioning of our bodies and nervous systems because yeah, most of us have been conditioned to be vigilant and traumatized by the world. And even if we weren't conditioned that way, collapse will set us on edge and the ability to calm our nervous system and bring a kind of um, steadiness takes some practice, takes some exercise. So that's what we're doing when we practice. Like right now, bring on your arms and legs. <laughs> Shake out your arms. If there's any kind of discharge that could happen, we want to help it move through the body. So a little shake, a little wiggle, a stretch, and then a settling breath or two. Maybe just wiggle your toes, feel your seat and your feet. And it sends signals to the brain of, oh yeah, I have a whole rest of my body that could help me process and digest this information. Not just my brain, not just like gripping the midline around my, my organs. I could use my whole body to help me carry all this information. So that brings me to number five, animism. So why animism? The essence of animism for me comes down to two things. The first one is the ensoulment of the world. And the second one is nature is family of origin. So ensoulment means that everything has a soul and awareness, even though it may be very different from human consciousness, it's aware of itself or of the world. So this implies that as much as I'm aware of the soil or my dog or my child, so are they aware and responsive to me. And if we regard nature as our family of origin, then this tree, this soil, this watershed, the mice, the wind, these are all my ancestors. We share an ancient organic lineage. And so from this animistic worldview, in principle, there's no difference to me between killing an animal to eat and killing a carrot or other vegetable to eat. There is no hierarchy of consciousness that would make eating vegetables from my garden morally superior to eating an animal that I've raised. There's no difference between, um, yeah, there's no hierarchy of consciousness. And so I cultivate relationship with the soil and the carrots and my dog and my son, all using the same approach. It's attachment oriented, it's trauma sensitive and consent based, it's somatically attuned. 
And when I do that, when I cultivate relationship with the soil and the rabbits and my son, all using that same approach, attachment, trauma-sensitive, consent-based, medically attuned, this is justice in action because then intersectionality becomes a series of smaller scale cooperation dilemmas. And that becomes my practice for the larger scale ones. What I choose to eat is a cooperation dilemma. What I choose to wear is a cooperation dilemma. If I choose to have a phone that employs enslaved labor, if I eat chocolate that employs enslaved people, you know, like this is all a cooperation dilemma that I can't actually sidestep. There's no pristine, pure way of being where I don't cause harm. And so I need to grapple with that harm. And that brings us to grief and death work. So when we move through the world in ever present and alive relationship, we encounter grief at every turn. And it's just easier to manage the grief when I can identify its signatures in my body, in my behaviors. It's easier to manage that overwhelming grief and sorrow if I can co-regulate with my partner or with the tree or with my dog. It's easier when I have practice completing a somatic stress cycle, completing, having a somatic completion. In other words, a somatic completion in a nutshell is like there's pent up pressure I help to discharge and release that pressure somehow. For some people, it's um, crying. For some people, it's shaking. For some people, it's running. (laughs) It's boxing. It's whatever. But I help discharge that release. And then there's a settling. And after I've settled and rested, there can be a restoration or a period of like aliveness can come in again. So it's important to sit with grief through a complete somatic cycle, through a somatic completion, let it get pent up, discharge and release it, settle, and then let aliveness come back in. The reason it's important to sit with grief through a somatic completion is so we can bring the cycling to an end. Otherwise, we get this like pent up, pent up, pent up, a little discharge, but we tried to stop it so that we never got the settling. We never got the rest and restoration. We never had aliveness, new energy come in. And we just end up kind of in this trough, right? So we want to have an entire cycle. And with long, slow emergencies like collapse, we need to practice lots of small somatic completions on a daily basis, letting small amounts of pressure build up, discharge, notice the downshifting like, a sigh, a yawn, a cough, eyes watering, mouth watering, tummy rumbling, right? And then letting ourselves restore and get energy again. We got to do lots of those on a daily basis so we can more or less balance the amount of stress discharging from our body with the amount coming in. Because our bodies have an upper limit to how much energy we can process through our system. And we got to track how close we are to our upper limit. We actually can't always go into the body. We can't always turn to embodiment to help us navigate collapse. Because if the body is already in a lot of overwhelm, then going in and trying to be like, where do you feel that in your body can just create way more flooding. And it can create a somatization of those emotions. Like ask me what I know about autoimmune disorders and like how they relate to collapse and patriarchy and capitalism fuck anyway so that brings us to the next collapse skill so we often need a bigger container not just our bodies to process the stress and balance and and process the onslaught of the overwhelm and that larger container is ritual so ritual literacy this is like the eighth skill of collapse is my friend And teacher Sarah Kerr says, ritual gives us a lived experience of the more than human. So ritual is one of the ways that we align what's happening outside in the world with what's happening inside. So events with our emotions. So again, it's helping to create inner coherence. 
things match. The outside and the insides match. Ritual, I think of ritual as like a punctuation mark in the universe. It's like a punctuation mark in the felt sense memory. It helps our bodies, hearts, minds, souls remember, okay, this happened. This was its beginning, middle, and end. I was once like that. I am now this. So developing ritual literacy, it takes some of the pressure off our body to carry all the burdens all the time. Sarah also says ritual is like energy medicine for the collective, which I really appreciate. And then there's like nine A and B, or maybe it's nine and 10, I'm not sure. So let's say nine A, creativity and play. So my friend Holly, my friend Holly Trular, who is like my thinking partner around all things collapse, you've heard us talk about collapse in depth, collapse psychology is a term that she coined. For 18 months, uh, we hosted a collapse community online. And Holly often says that problem solving together is how adults play in capitalism, <laughs> which we're totally not saying, hey, let's problem solve around collapse. It'll be fun. What we're saying is like, it's a sad reality that we don't really know how to play anymore. So instead we like seek contact with others by working through trouble and conflicts and dilemmas, right? It's a sad reality that problem solving is the form of creative expression most readily available to us in late stage racialized capitalism at the end of empire. Anyway, but what we could do instead is cultivate enough calmness in the nervous system and the ability to land safeness in the nervous system so that our social engagement branch of our nervous system, the part that enables us to attend to the world with interest and curiosity and um, collaboration, that part can like come on and we can just play and be creative and relax and have fun sometimes. So we need to do that in order to give the fight and flight and like the, the freeze branches of the nervous system a chance to just like rest and go on vacation. So, so that's kind of like one way of thinking about that skill. I actually think creativity and play, yes, very important, but kind of like pre-existing that for me and for my husband, Ruben, was this other principle that I guess I would call like pleasure and enoughness. So the small and delicious life, quote unquote, is the name of my husband's kind of sleepy, but very interesting. You know, he's not super active on it, but it's where he puts his essays and has his stuff archived. It's his blog. And it pre-existed my work with Holly on um, tending the threshold and the threshold community. And this idea of cultivating a small and delicious life and like how we do it was written about in some detail in an article called Preparing for a Beautiful End by Josiah Neufeld. It was published in the winter of 2014 in G's Magazine and then republished in the summer of 2015 in the Utney Reader. So pleasure and enoughness are different ways of describing what I would now call landing safeness in your body. So with prolonged free states like collapse, it's really important to be careful about coming back into the body because as I said, it's often a site of overwhelm and rapid embodiment can cause flooding. So we're pacing and dosing our embodiment and even our pleasure practices, more trauma-informed, so that they don't overwhelm our system and throw us into like deeper shutdown or chaos or survival response. And in gen generative somatics, they talk about developing the skill of satisfiability. So enoughness can be really hard to gauge in collapse times, especially because we have these like massive scale jumps between different realities. Like what even is a billionaire? What fucking reality is that human? I, it's a person hoarding an absurd amount of wealth, right? And again, that's like one of the hallmarks of collapse is absurdity. Things are so fucked up that it's absurd. That's collapse. Um, now, if you go to my website and you read the transcript of the speech I gave at Tending the Threshold, that conference in 2018, it was called Pandora's, Leaning into Pandora's Legacy. I go into some detail about disorganized attachment in an abusive overculture. So the abusive overculture of capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, patriarchy. Thank you, Bell Hooks, for coining that. 
So one feature of falling into a disorganized pattern is it's so disorienting that it provokes a lot of anxiety and it can make us mistrust even the things that should help us feel settled and more safeness. So we might have an experience of yielding into safeness for a little while, but then suddenly it'll trigger this chronic expectation of disappointment. And it can sound or feel like in the body, like what I called like the yeah, but like, yeah, but, oh, but what about, you know, this, this feeling of safeness or a good thing is happening right now, but it isn't enough or it's not quite what I need or, or sometimes it's more about myself. It's like, I'm not doing enough. I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy. You know, um, it's just like, kind of got like a, don't, don't come too close, but don't leave me. Don't stop. Don't, don't do that. That kind of thing. So it's this disorganized, come here, go away feeling. I just want to say this is totally normal, natural response to collapse. And like, so for all practical purposes, like we can't totally avoid that. That's just how mammals will behave in confusing and unclear circumstances. They will behave in confusing and unclear ways. So no judgment. It's expected that we will all be disorganized at different points and collapse. But to undo that conditioning towards vigilance, to actually be able to take in the resource of goodness, we need to practice the skills of the satisfaction cycle. And I think that was like um, Barbara Bainbridge Cohen who described that, or I'm pretty sure she sort of coined that with embodied psychotherapy. The idea of the satisfaction cycle. So there's yield, reach, grasp, pull, push. But it's especially the first one, which is yielding. Think about just yielding like, you know, they often describe like a, like a baby in the womb, you know, or just like totally being able to land safeness and pleasure in the body just by yielding. So you might even try it right now. Just like notice where you're holding in your body. That's like generally what we first notice. <laughs> it's like, ah, that does not feel totally relaxed but just yield. You might even remember something that you've done or made that increased your sense of pride or self-efficacy. Something just made you feel good and happy. Just see if you can yield a little bit, just even 1%. Just a global micro relaxation, softening all over. Can you land some goodness in your body? Just take in like a teaspoon more, one sip more. And maybe now isn't the time. If you're just like, no, going in does not feel good. You could just keep your eyes open and visualize like perhaps a future time when you could just yield to something good and enjoy it. And if you could, where made it land on you or around you? So just wiggle your fingers and toes for a second. So we're just moving to the end here. I'm going to talk a little bit more about grief and death stuff, because that's what we're talking about, right? Collapse, it's the end of things, the end of, I mean, one way of looking at it is like everything and everyone you love, right? So little known fact about me. I spent a year, about a year in counseling with a therapist who also happened to be a Stoic philosopher. And the Stoics have a practice of starting each day by imagining their own death. So why? Why would you do that? Well, because every moment you're alive is made much richer by recognizing how rare and fleeting each breath in each moment is. Memento Mori, just contemplating our inevitable death, removes our fear of death. Why didn't I mention this, though, in the grief and death work section? Well, it's because the surprising result of spending a year contemplating your own death every day is that it encourages us to take the business of having a good time while we're here more seriously. It's like, if this is it, have I lived it as good as I could? When you experience each day that you wake up as like another day that you have survived, when your morning prayer is to give thanks for safe passage through the night, as my friend Monique has taught me to do, there's a deep gratitude and a profound sense of hospitality towards all the goodness the day might bring. It really does feel like a triumph to be alive at all. It feels like an, an escape from the clutches of doom and despair to be able to take in the fullness of beauty, maybe of the morning light or the marvelousness of spring blossoms on the tree 
or like the, the charm of the resident crows coming to feed on our front stoop, you know, the gift of my man, come, seeing him come through the door at the end of the day. It all feels like so much that I want to fight for, that I want to tend to, I want to give all my heart to and reach to towards with my whole self. So the small and delicious life is an act of reaching towards what you really care about. And the small is kind of about like how the gestures might look, you know, it might not look like much to learn about your nervous system or to be figuring out attachment and contact nutrition or to be thanking higher powers for safe passage through the night. But small is good medicine for big and overwhelming situations. Remember, think about the small little area in a somatic completion, like in somatics, when somebody's experiencing global high activation, and you can go listen to the ed- episode I did with Patty Elledge on this episode 132. If we're experiencing global high activation, what we do is we bring it into focus. We focus on a small area, no bigger than the size of our palm. And we allow the somatic completion just to happen in that one area. So the pressure to build, discharge, settle, all within that small area. And what sometimes happens is then aliveness and vitality and inspiration, they come in. This empowered state we actually call pronking will enter the body. And when it does, it comes into the whole being and it kind of has this bounce. It's like up and down, side to side. Pronking is like, think of little baby goats (laughs) bouncing around. That's what pronking is. And it's a wonderful thing when it happens. And the delicious part of this philosophy is kind of like the sales job of the small. And delicious can be about food and drink. It totally is for me. But it can also be about that quality of humanness. That feeling when you're able to melt into a pleasurable experience and rest there. You know, rest in a delicious moment between friends or a delicious story. Deliciousness is about delight and charm and allurement. It has an enchanting quality where enchantment means something kind of like being sung into life by some magical power. So I think of pleasure as a skill of collapse and enoughness as a meta skill. Pleasure is the thing you can practice and learn through exposure and repetition and attention and effort. But enoughness is the thing you go to therapy to figure the fuck out. (laughs) It's like pretty deep. I don't need to mention capitalism here, do I? Probably goes without saying, but let me just say, cultivating the skill of feeling sated and enoughness is a prerequisite for creating a future that is something other than a capitalist nightmare. Like this is so obvious, we don't need to say it, right? But the ability to feel sated outside of like stuff and sex and stimulation and those inputs, that is what is needed. That It's about cultivating capacity for intimacy with the self and with the world. It's the ability to take in an exquisite sense of being in contact and have that contact land deeply inside you. So all that to say, the small and delicious life is the encapsulation of all these collapse skills and practices. It's where there's this high quality of humanness and dignity and pleasure and enoughness. There's a sense of inner coherence and self-efficacy and a measure of agency. And most importantly, we reach towards what we care about with our whole heart because we're in touch with it. We know what we care about. We have given attention to it and been present to it. And that's languaging that I really love, reaching towards what you care about. Earlier in my career, I used to use more language of like purpose and then I use more language around like values, and I think they get at the same thing. But this language, it comes from my teachers of somatics for racial justice, and it's in the lineage of generative somatics in Strozzi Institute. So I've heard this from Dara Silverman and Amanda Ream, two excellent teachers. Reach for what you care about. And even if you can't articulate it deep down, I bet you have a sense of what you really care about. And if... If it's the right thing, you probably can't articulate it. It's like something ineffable. It's so big and so important. You can't even really pin it down. But it's like, what are you here for? What is worth standing up for? What is worth fighting for? Who or what would you put yourself on the line for? Because you care so much. For me, you know, there's a bunch of things. But like the first one that comes to mind is my kiddo, right? 
but it's also like the legacy I want to leave of how I made people feel and the stuff I asked them to think about, you know, it, it can be things like, like for me, it's the influence I want to have on engendering in myself and those around me, a sense of being safe, seen, secure, and soothed. Those things really matter to me and I can affect them in millions of ways every day. For me, a lot is in the food I make, the quality of contact nutrition I offer, the time I spend nurturing relationships, the service I offer to the communities and spaces I'm in. These are actually, though, just like really small things taken individually. But there's a quality of presence. There's a breadth and depth that contributes to that feeling of enoughness. I am enough. What I'm doing is enough. It contributes to that feeling of richness in a life that's small and delicious. So I'm going to leave you with a short excerpt from that article I mentioned, published about my husband and me in G's Magazine and um, Utney Reader. Like I said, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's, it's from before my child's gender transition, but they're okay with the use of their birth name and former gender identity in this context. So here's a little excerpt. Mirabella, Carmen's daughter, is a quiet, dark-haired 10-year-old who thinks about things like how to get more allowance money and whether her friends at school think she's weird because her parents raise rabbits for food. As the four of us sat down to a delicious dinner of rabbit hocks braised and herbs and beer, I asked Mirabella what she imagined would be different in the future. Hoverboards, she suggested. Was there anything she worried about? Less wilderness in which to go hiking. Later, I asked Carmen and Ruben how you prepare your child for a future that might not involve hoverboards after all, or antibiotics, or electricity. I can't give her safety, Ruben said, but I can give her skills. He meant things like hunting, butchering, and canning. But Carmen was thinking about another set of skills she wanted for her daughter. The ability to cultivate her own spirituality, to feel empathy for others, and to know the joy of working together with the community. That's what will keep her safe, I think, said Carmen. Not that she'll necessarily be a survivor, but she'll be someone who can handle emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever's happening to her, and recognize that when she feels despair, that's okay, and that's natural. And here are the skills you have for that. And when she's feeling inspired, that's great too, and she can carry other people. As Carmen talked about her daughter's uncertain future, I saw tears shining in her eyes. I do get sad and teary, she said, without wiping them away. Mirabella's gonna have so much pain, but at the same time, it's like that pain beauty when you see a great work of art and it catches your heart in a vice grip. The beauty of that is she'll probably go through it so well because she'll recognize that there's a richness to experiencing life in every dimension. My friend, that is not all I have to say about the topic of collapse, but it's all I have for now. I want to offer just this one small takeaway, that learning any skill teaches you that you can learn any skill. So just try developing more skillfulness in whatever area feels most doable and reachable and useful for you. The others will follow and build on each other over time. And I know this is a lot to digest. So if you would like help digesting it, do consider joining the Numinous Network for a month. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, I think of it as like masterclass for people who are interested in topics like <laughs> collapse and somatics and polyvagal and magic and folk magic and stuff like that. Or you, you could think of it as like, an online yoga studio membership. But instead of yoga, we're learning how to nurture secure attachment and how to apply polyvagal theory in everyday life. And we're understanding our nervous system in relation to consent and power and privilege. <laughs> and we're working through our collapse grief using ritual and ceremony and somatic practice. It's a very cool space. It's unlike anything you've ever experienced. You can learn more about it at carmenspaniola.com. And you can find today's show notes at numinouspodcast.com. Thanks for spending time with me today. The last thing is the listener shout out, and it's to my one download this week from Beijing. Beijing. 
So hi, Beijing. <laughs> I see you. I see you. I totally saw that you listened this week with your one download. Thank you. I super appreciate it. And I'm glad you're here. Until next time, take care.